0: Today in our readings, we're confronted by the reality of sin and evil. So that's what I want to talk about. Uh, so a couple of points in terms of how, like, you know, what God is trying to say to us. I think in these uh, in these readings on on what evil really is. And I think the first point to note is that temptation is not sin. And if you look at that first reading from Genesis, there's this. There's this moment where, you know, the serpent has told Eve, oh, you're not going to die, you know, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And so then she looks at the fruit and she sees that it's, you know, good for gaining wisdom and beautiful to the, to behold and good for food. And that's the moment of temptation. That's where there's this appeal to her interiorly to, to do what she knows God said not to do. But that's not the same thing as sin. Sin doesn't enter the world until she actually reaches for the forbidden fruit and takes it and eats it. That's when sin enters the world. And I think oftentimes it's very easy to be flustered and upset by the fact that we are tempted or what our temptations are. Um, But that's not, you know, sort of the Christian understanding of, you know, a good interior life. You know, we're not to be... Disturbed by our temptations. Even by our sins, we shouldn't be disturbed. Just calmly go to God in mercy, ask his forgiveness. But especially by temptations. When I gave this homily this morning uh, in Grand Rapids, uh, I, afterwards I went to the basement. I was hungry, I needed a bagel. And uh, and this guy came up to me as I'm putting cream cheese on He's like, oh, I love the homily, Father. And I was like, oh, great. What would you get out of it? you know?" And he's like, well, you know, I just love the point that you made about temptation is not sin. He's like, you know, it just told me that I didn't need to carry around the shame of being tempted. I thought, wow, he got it. Like, what, what a beautiful sort of summary of that. Temptation is not sin. It doesn't actually separate us from God at all. In fact, it can be this opportunity for his grace to come in. The second thing that I'd like to look at is this point of the knowledge of good and evil, and the the Hebrew word that's used in the text, uh, yada. Um, you know, if you if you look it up um, in a, a scripture concordance, I mean, it has it has a whole range of meanings that it could have. You know, from the standard idea of knowledge to much more intimate things, which I'll get to in a moment. But when we when we talk about you know God knowing good from evil. Um, In one sense, you know, uh, the serpent is right in in saying that God knows the difference between good and evil. In fact, God knows it most supremely and better than anyone else. Why? Because he himself is goodness. And so he, as goodness itself, and the maker of all things, understands where his creatures fall short. He He knows that better than anyone else. You know, A car owner may be aware of you know, a vehicle's defects, but, but not nearly as well as, as the engineers who put the car together. It's a different level of knowledge. So God supremely knows good and evil because he is so good. But I think it's interesting how when, when the serpent tempts Eve, I think that's what he's trying to get in her mind you know, that she's going to know good and evil. And even sort of beyond that, that she, like God, will get to name good and evil. Because that's the thing. God knows good and evil for us because he made us. So in one sense, he makes the decision of how uh, we, uh, what it means for us to do something bad because he defines what it means for us to be good by the way we're made. And so he's trying to get Eve to, to see in this temptation that she will be um, like God, knowing good and evil but also in some sense deciding she will have a choice and she will have the power to make good and evil in a way now i'm sure that that's the idea he wanted to plant in her minds but actually i think he's telling her the truth in another way that in eating the fruit she will know good and evil not as god knows it as the supremely holy one she will know it intimately because the evil will be part of her this is another shade of yada, or, or evil in the scripture, this intimate, personal, knowing encounter. You know, when scripture wants to talk uh, respectfully about the relations of husband and wife, what does it say? It says, like, Abraham knew his wife Sarah. Yada is the word that's used. It's this intimate, personal knowledge. And so when Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit, they do have intimate, personal knowledge of evil, because it's now inside of them and so they know good and evil in a new in a new way hence the taking the fig leaves and covering things up because there's this new awareness of nakedness and not just like the fact of no clothes but the sort of intimate knowledge of how that can be misused because they know it they sense it in themselves now sometimes said, and this is the third point I want to make it sometimes said, "Well, you can't know the good without the evil. You can't, can't really appreciate good without evil." There is some truth to that. You know, nobody appreciates a, a glass of cold water like when they've come in from, you know three hours in the hot summer sun working away or playing sports or something, and they get that cold drink. And only then does the, does the goodness of that cold water become really apparent because we've encountered the evil of heat and thirst. We don't appreciate the cold water so much in the middle of winter. So there is some, some sense in which it's true that, you know, without the evil you can't really appreciate the good. The problem, the problem is when you try and turn that into a grand metaphysical statement about good and evil. Because when you expand it out, it's absolutely false. And even in our experience, when we expand it out, it's false. You don't actually need um, evil to appreciate and understand the good. You need goodness. That's what it takes to understand the good, goodness. And that's why, you know, um, I think uh, someone who's dealing with an addiction, let's say to alcohol or something, and they, you know, and they're in the stage where you know, they're, they're, oh, I don't have a problem. I can stop drinking anytime I want to. You know, and everyone else sees that there's a problem, and so, you know, the relatives' friends get together, you know, and they say, Bob's got a problem. You know, we need to talk to Bob and make him aware what's going on and get him some help. So they have an intervention. The reason people stage interventions is because the evil of alcoholism is obvious to everyone except the alcoholic who's. Neck deep in it. It's obvious to everyone else. It's obvious to the people who are not struggling with that sin. And it's most invisible to the person who's in the midst of it. So it's not, it's not that we need evil to understand the good. Actually, on the deeper level, it's only in goodness that we can under, appreciate evil. One sort of a practical example of this, I, I, I've seen this actually a lot It's in the last month, it's been very encouraging, going to uh, meetings with the uh, Exodus 90 groups. Um, so I sit down in four men's groups uh, per week. And one of the very reassuring signs that, that makes me think things are going well, that, that this is bearing fruit, is that people will start to notice sins that they didn't notice before it's not that they're committing more sins it's just like oh i kind of realize why i'm doing this i see where my pride was in doing this or that and so there's this greater awareness of evil the seeing more of it why because there's more of the light of jesus within revealing where the shadows are and i think it's a beautiful thing to see that brings us to the question of how can we see better? How can we see better? I think there are two things suggested by the gospel itself. First, fasting and prayer. You know, that to let go of these minor good things, like food, sweets, desserts, TV time, whatever, to let go of these little good things so we can encounter the really good thing, which is God himself, brings us a meeting with him. And... And that reveals what's going on inside. You know? Um, as my spiritual director says, you know, if if you if you want the truth, pray. And so Jesus prays and fasts in the desert as an example for us. So that kind of prayer and fasting in Lent should bring should bring a greater sense of our own sin. If we're doing it right. The second thing. I think I mentioned this before in homilies, is the devil. Uh, that the great service that he does to us is he makes us really aware of where our weaknesses are. That's why my favorite question in confession is, what did the voice of temptation say to you to get you to give into that sin? You know, if, you, if you've if you ever gone to confession to me, you've probably heard that question. Because it's revealing. You know, and that, sins oftentimes, you know, the, the cause is not sort of Obvious, you know. Oh, uh, blessing Father, for I sinned. I got really drunk last Saturday. Well, it might be that you wanted a good time, or it might be you were really lonely and sad. You know, Um, it might be this is how you deal with some unhappiness in, in your life. So, what the voice of temptation says is so crucial. It's not sort of the outward sin that always reveals what's going on. So that's the the service that the devil does for us. It's kind of like the first temptation. Jesus fasting for 40 days. He's hungry. What's the first temptation? Turn these stones into bread. It reveals Jesus' weakness as God made man. He's hungry. Same thing when you watch, there's a classic Simpsons episode where Homer sells his soul to the devil. For what? A donut. I mean, the the only other possible alternative was beer. You knew it was going to be one of those two things. So he eats the forbidden donut, sells his soul. So finally, the most important question, well, what is the remedy? What's the remedy for evil? I think there are two things. St. Paul in the second reading points to Jesus. Jesus is the real remedy for sin. So how then do we have Jesus' power and his grace in our lives. And that goes to faith. And this is something that Jesus himself, himself models. Now, in one sense, Jesus doesn't have any faith because Jesus is always in his soul united to the Father. So he doesn't have faith in the sense of God is something unseen for him. But God became man to give us an example, so he shows us what his faith looked like. And every time Jesus is tempted in the Gospel, what does he do? He responds with Scripture. He responds with God's revelation of the truth. He doesn't rely on human understanding or a fancy argument. The devil hits him with a temptation and he immediately comes back with faith, a statement of faith. And I think it's a model, you know. Um, You know, it's good it's good as Catholics to think about our faith to try and grow in understanding. You know, we have Sunday School 2.0, last week was lust and gluttony, this week is avarice. Um, and it's good to think about those things and, and, and moral theology. You know, but when you're being hit with a temptation to lust or gluttony or avarice, that is not the moment to start reconsidering your moral theology. It's the last thing you should do. It's in those moments that you let the faith do the thinking for you. When you're not tempted, then you can think about it and read about it, pray about it. And, but in moments of temptation, use, use your faith. That's what St. Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians when he talks about put on the armor of God in his spiritual combat. And he says, take up the shield of faith, which will extinguish all the flaming arrows of the enemy. And and the analogy is important. What is the the shield, unlike your helmet or your breastplate or, you know, your sword, which is attached to you, the shield is not on your body. It's separate from you. It's the thing that absorbs the blow, the arrow, the sword, you know, whatever it is. It takes the hit so that you don't. That's its practical purpose in combat. So when St. Paul says, take the shield of faith, what he's saying is, use your faith. Put it in front of you. Let it absorb these lies from the enemy. So, you don't have to think about it in the moment of combat. So, I'm going to leave you with a quote from 1 Peter to think about. Close your eyes. Just think about how this might speak to you. St. Peter says, Your opponent, the devil, is prowling like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him steadfast in your faith.